Good morning, church. Scripture passage this morning comes from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. If you would like to use the Pew Bible in front of you or behind you, you can find the passage on page 8. This is Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1 through 9. Now hear this reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. may be seated. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for this word, and we know our desperate need for understanding, and that's why we plead for the Spirit to come, to speak to us through the preaching of your word, that we might understand, and not only that, that we might obey. So give us that heart of faith and that will to submit and obey to your holy words. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are starting a new sermon series on Bible translation that is timed with the Adopt-A-Verse campaign that we have been previewing for the last few weeks. Starting today and for the next two Sundays, you'll have a chance to help get the book of Colossians and the book of Jude, so we're adding Jude on as well because we believe that we can do, we can do two books at least, uh, translating them into the heart language of three connected people groups together known as the Petit Cluster, and they are a group of people that are living on a large island nation in Southeast Asia. We are working with an organization called The Seed Company, And the Seed Company itself partners with a number of existing translation companies, and they have an ambitious goal of getting a Bible translation project started by 2025 for all the remaining untranslated languages of the world. And their larger vision here is to complete all these translations within our generation. They, the Seed Company, 
wants you to imagine zero languages that don't have a full Bible. And they say that by the grace of God, that goal is an achievable goal within our lifetime. And so church, this is a great opportunity for us to get behind. And it's a campaign, if you think about it, that really hits home for a Chinese church like ours. That's because the heart of Bible translation, at the heart of Bible translation, is a deep appreciation for heart language. A heart language, if you're not familiar with that term, is a language, is the language that you would use to most effectively express your thoughts and feelings and to process them. And so if you're only proficient in one language, well, then that's obviously your heart language. But if you're bilingual or multilingual, then your heart language may not even be the one that you use most of the day. So English might be the language that you use the most in a given day, but you might be constantly processing what you're taking in through another language. You likely think and dream in this language, and if you're religious, you probably pray in this language. That would be your heart language. Now, as a Chinese church, we were established because of this deep appreciation for one's heart language. Chinese immigrants can be proficient in English. They can work just fine in the workplace and operate in the marketplace. But when it comes to worshiping God in song or listening to the word preached or reading his word in study and devotion, well, we all tend to gravitate towards our heart language. There's a difference when communicating with God or about God in your mother tongue versus in an adopted tongue. So that's appreciating and respecting heart languages. You know, I remember last year during our missions conference, we had a missionary from Vietnam uh, as one of our guest preachers, and he shared a story about a conversation that he had with a woman from an unreached people group in Vietnam, a people group called the Thai Dam people, and he shared the gospel with her in her dialect, and to which she was, you know, fairly responsive to the sharing. But it was really after he had prayed for her in her language, in the Thai Nam language, that after he said amen, he looked up and he saw that she was crying, that she was moved to tears. And he says it's not because of the eloquence of his prayer. He asked her, why are you crying? And she said, I didn't know God spoke Thai Dom. Until that day, she assumed the Christian God was a foreign God, a Western God. But when she realized that God spoke her language, it drew God so much closer to her to discover that she can communicate with God with her own heart language just really opened up a brand new paradigm for her. This could be her God, and she could be loved by him. So that's the power of a heart language. And that, my friends, is why Bible translation is such an important task for the church. We, as a church, have a stewardship to translate the Word of God into every heart language so that every single people group on the face of the earth can hear Jesus and speak to Jesus in their own heart language, in their own native tongue. 
but I know that there are those who question the efficiency of this task. They're going to argue that since we live in a globalized society dominated by a handful of primary languages, you've got English, Mandarin, Spanish, French, wouldn't it just be easier to translate uh, uh, that uh, native language into one of these? um, Actually, wouldn't it be easier to teach them how to speak one of these primary languages then instead of going through all the effort of translating the Bible into their language, you're really going to invest all of that time and money and energy to translate the Bible for just a small, primitive, illiterate people group that number in just a few hundred. Is that really a good stewardship of our limited resources? Shouldn't we just teach them English? Just teach them Mandarin? Well, it's not hard to sympathize with this argument. And that's why this effort of Bible translation comes down to a conviction regarding heart languages. Bible translation is hard work. It takes perseverance. And the effort to get the Bible translated into every language on the earth will be sustained not by just sheer determination, but, friends, by a deep theology. What we need is a biblical theology of the human language, of human languages that we use. Where did the diversity of languages on this planet come from? Why is there not just one universal common language? And is that the goal? Is that what we're all going to experience in heaven? Will we be all speaking one common language in heaven? And how does the future of human language impact our present effort in Bible translation? To answer these questions, my friends, we will be turning to Genesis chapter 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel. And we're going to consider three things. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin, find an outline. The three things we're going to be considering is first, the power of a common language. Second, the judgment by multiplying languages. And third, the redemption of all languages. Let's begin by considering the unifying power of a common language. When we turn to the book of Genesis, we are introduced to the primitive history of all people groups on earth. The biblical story of origins insists that all of us are of one race, the human race. Everyone, no matter where you're born, no matter what language you grew up speaking, no matter the color of your skin, Everyone shares in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. And I would contend that without this biblical understanding of our common origins, there would be no sustainable argument for human rights. There would be no way to resist the toxicity of racism or any theory of racial superiority. It is the biblical doctrine of creation that is necessary to combat those lies. Now, in the beginning, not only was everyone made in the same image of God, it says that everyone spoke the same language. There was a universal common language, and that is what brought humanity together and enabled great collaboration and great innovation. They were able to build a new city and a magnificent tower in a location that didn't have stone and mortar, the typical building blocks that you would have used. 
Look with me at verses 1 to 3 again, and I'm going to read that. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly, and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. It's because of a common language that people are able to collaborate and innovate and make new discoveries. They figured out how to construct these tall towers by using baked bricks instead of stone, using bitumen, asphalt, instead of mortar. That is the power of a shared language working itself out through a people. Let's just be honest. It's just so much easier to work with people and get things done when you speak each other's languages. We've all experienced this at some point, especially if you've traveled abroad, if you've lived abroad. You know, you, you you can love being in diverse environments. You can love being with people of different backgrounds, but there is something unique to be experienced when you gather with people who speak your own language. There's just an ease of communication between you. Even if you were just strangers meeting for the first time, the fact that you speak each other's heart language endears you to each other much faster than normal. Again, if if you've lived abroad, you've probably experienced this when you finally find people who speak your language. So you would think that Possessing one universal common language would have contributed to greater unity, greater oneness of faith. But don't forget how human sinfulness was introduced into the world back in Genesis chapter 3. And that sinfulness corrupted human collaboration. A common language certainly united humanity, but sadly united us in rebellion. So let me read verse 4 and listen carefully to their reasoning for building this city and its mighty tower. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they want four things. First, they want to build a city. Second, they want to to build a tower with its top in the heavens. Third, they want to make a name for themselves. And fourth, they don't want to be dispersed over the face of the earth. Now, in order to accomplish that last thing, they do the first. They don't want to be dispersed, so they build themselves a city. And in order to make a name for themselves, they build themselves a tower that stretches up to the heavens. Now, You know, on one hand, you can understand why they don't want to be dispersed. If if a large number of you spoke the same language, you easily understand each other, if you work well as a group, why would you want to disperse? Besides, isn't there a security in numbers? Well, it all seems innocent enough until you read Genesis 11 in the context of Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. That's where God commands humanity to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Their mandate from God is to disperse and to populate the planet, to fill the earth with the praise and knowledge of the Lord. So their decision to stay put, 
their decision to resist dispersion is nothing short of treason. This is a sinful act of rebellion. And building this tower just makes it worse. Most commentators think that what they're building was a ziggurat, a stair-stepped, pyramid-shaped tower, very common in those days. They were considered a meeting point between heaven and earth. And that's why the ziggurats would typically stretch all the way up to the sky, to the heavens, because it was basically considered a stairway to heaven. That's really how inflated their pride had grown. They were trying to get to God, trying to approach God by their own efforts. Here's another way to look at what's happening here. When they wanted to build a city because they didn't want to disperse, what were they really ultimately after? It was security. And when they wanted to build a tower up to heaven because they wanted to make a name for themselves, what were they ultimately after? Recognition. That's what they wanted. Security and recognition. Now, isn't that what all of us are looking for? And, you know, these aren't bad things in and of themselves. But the problem is they refused to depend on God for either of them. And that was the problem. And it's really no different than what occurred in Genesis chapter 3. Once again, humanity refused to trust in God's provision, and they tried to obtain his blessings by their own efforts. That's how sin expressed itself initially in Eden. That's how sin is expressing itself in Babel. And the flood that we read about back in Genesis chapter 7 was simply unable to wash away sin from the world because sin was buried too deep in the hearts of every single person. So here we have a people blessed with a common language. They have the power and potential to do so much for God's glory, for God's name, but because of sin and its corruption, they're just too busy trying to preserve their own glory and to make a name for themselves. And so in the next scene, God responds to this sinful rebellion. This leads us to our second point. Now let's consider the judgment by multiplying languages. And what we discover is that the multiplicity of human languages is a result of sinful disobedience. So while we do have a deep appreciation for heart languages, we're just going to have to wrestle with the Bible's teaching that They were birthed out of rebellion. This, my friends, is a tension that we're going to have to address. But first, let's see how God responds. Look back at verse 5. And the Lord came to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. He came down to see this. Now, there's a bit of irony, humorous irony, when it says the Lord, he had to come down to see this measly thing, right? I mean, this just ought to humble all of these builders who thought that they had built something so tall and mighty, stretching up into the heavens, and God still has to come down to look at it. And look at verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So God comes down, to stop them, not because 
He's worried that they might become unstoppable, but because he knows that they're never going to stop in their rebellion. You see, he's not concerned here with the heights of their accomplishments that they might achieve. He's concerned with the depths of sin that they might dive into. He's essentially saying, if I don't act now to restrain their sinfulness, there's no telling how bad it's going to get. There's no telling how much they're going to destroy themselves and my creation. So he comes down and he he confuses their speech. Let me read the rest of the passage. Verse 7, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So because they no longer possess a universal common language, they can no longer collaborate and coordinate their efforts. And so they leave off building the city, and they are dispersed over the face of all the earth. They wanted to make a name for themselves, and now they can't even pronounce each other's names. They wanted to resist being dispersed, but now they are scattered all over the earth. This, my friends, is judgment happening. This is God's way of punishing them. But notice how even God's judgment, even when he punishes, it's filled with mercy. You see, by confusing their speech, God dispersed the people over all the face of the earth, like he had asked for in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. He was getting them right back on track with his redemptive plans for creation. This is just another example that we see in the Bible of what's known as the doctrine of confluence. Confluence means to flow together, and this doctrine teaches about God's will, and how his will is sovereign and comprehensive. And so within his overall will flow multiple decisions and intentions coming from multiple free-willing actors. So just imagine with me a, a mighty river flowing in one general direction. But within that river, there are smaller tributaries being fed into it. And at those junctions, you're going to find a confluence of currents. They may be different currents. They may even be appearing to run against each other. But in the end, they all flow within the same mighty river. And so in our story, you've got the current of God's will to bless his people with one common language for the sake of collaboration. And then you also have the current of the people's sinful rebellion that, that flow against God's intention for them. And then you have the current of God's judgment coming in, removing the blessing of a common language, multiplying their tongues, dividing them into different tribes. I know these currents they appear to be different. They appear to run against each other. But in the end, they all flow because of concurrence, confluence, 
they all flow together within the same mighty will of God, that sovereign, comprehensive will. So, does this mean that all of the languages are birthed in sin and disobedience? Well, part of the answer would be yes. That's what the story of Babel is describing for us, where all the different languages come from. But friends, yes would only be a partial answer. Yes, all of our unique heart languages are birthed in sin, but are all of our languages, are they inherently bad? Is it bad? Is it counter to God's will for there to be a multiplicity of languages in the world? Is God's preference and plan for, for us to reunite a one around one common language and to be restored as one tribe with one tongue? I would argue the answer is no. This is not a contradiction here. This is a confluence, a confluence of, of different wills all flowing within the same mighty will of God. Yes, God created humanity with one common language. Yes, it was because of human sin that God multiplied languages. But no, it does not imply that a multiplicity of languages is inherently a bad thing. No, it is not God's plan to go back to one common language. And this is not an example of God changing his plans. This is an example of God sovereignly using even human sin and rebellion to accomplish his greater plans. To see how this confluence of divine desires flow together, we need to read this story of the Tower of Babel within the larger biblical narrative that unfolds from the Old into the New Testament. And so let's do that as we consider our third point, the redemption of all languages. Now, by Genesis chapter 11, understandably, things are looking bleak. Yes, they're finally filling the earth, but humanity is now fractured. Their unity is gone. They're divided among a multiplicity of tribes and tongues. Will things ever go back? Will things ever be restored? Well, immediately in our next chapter, in Genesis 12, we are introduced to a man named Abraham to whom God promises to make into one of the nations among a whole table of nations. And notice how in chapter 12, verse 2, notice how God promises to make a great name for Abraham. That's the thing, isn't it? You know, we, we, we try our hardest to make a name for ourselves but the only name that matters is the one that God makes for us. And God says he's going to make a name for us. He is going to give us power, influence, recognition, a great name, so that we will be a blessing to others. Not to serve self-interest, but to serve others. Well, the rest of the Bible is about how God keeps this promise to make a great name and a great nation out of Abraham. The overall storyline of Scripture follows the line of Abraham, the people of Israel, and how 
through the people and story of Israel, God will deal with the problem of human sin and rebellion, which was manifested for us in the Tower of Babel. Because there are a thousand languages now, there are a thousand ways to worship falsely, to praise false gods in our own heart language. And that's why we see, and that's what we're going to see just played out in the rest of the Old Testament. Idolatry and false worship are going to cover the face of the earth. But of course, in the Old Testament, we continue to read hints hints from the prophets that this will not always be so. So listen with me to one of the prophets. Listen to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet, foretelling a time when the speech of the nations will be changed. Zephaniah 3, 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Now, you might assume that means everyone's speech is going to be changed into the same language. But I would say that's reading too much into the text. The emphasis here is on the purity of their speech in contrast to the false worship that the nations are currently entertaining. And so God is saying what he's going to do one day is he's going to do something big, something significant, so that all the different peoples on the face of the earth will call upon the name of the Lord in a pure speech, in pure worship. And we will be united once again to serve him with one accord. Well, as the story of Scripture unfolds into the New Testament, we're immediately introduced to a son of Abraham, a man named Jesus. And we quickly come to see that he is actually God incarnate. In Jesus, God once again comes down to visit a city and to see what they have built. This city is called Jerusalem, and what they have built, a temple has now become a shameful den of thieves. So once again, there's judgment and punishment. But once again, there's grace and mercy. We're told that Jesus came down to Jerusalem, and five days later he was led out of those city gates with a cross on his back. Hebrews chapter 13 says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So, once again, there is punishment. There is judgment for sin. But notice this time, it's Jesus who takes the punishment for us. He gets dispersed instead of us. He gets thrown out of the city so that we can stay in it. Jesus is exiled and killed so that sinners like us can be restored and given new life. Friends, it's only through this gospel, it's only through this good news of what Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection, only through this gospel can we be back on track with God and his plan of redemption. At Babel, 
things went off track. We started by speaking one language, but we ended in confusion with multiple languages, unable to understand each other. But now, with Jesus' death and resurrection, God is bringing us back on track. And as the story unfolds, God comes down once again, but this time, this time in the person of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, we're told that Jesus' followers were gathered together on the day of Pentecost. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled, listen, they were all filled filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there was dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Do you see what's happening here? It's not as if all of these foreigners suddenly understood Aramaic, which would have been the language the disciples were speaking. It's not as if everyone began communicating with one common language. No, somehow the spirit of the risen Christ enabled everyone to suddenly be able to understand and to hear and understand the gospel being proclaimed in his own native language. That phrase there, native language, is literally the language of your birth. Friends, we're talking about our heart language Everyone was hearing about the risen Christ in their own heart language. And then Peter stands up and he explains that Pentecost is a sign of those last days that the prophets spoke of. The days have come when, when all the nations will come together and they will be calling on the name of the Lord with pure speech. But in their own native tongue. This, my friends, is how the story of Babel finds its resolution in the events of Pentecost. Unity was lost at Babel. It was restored at Pentecost. Confusion was sowed at Babel. Understanding was recovered at Pentecost. Now, I, I've heard some people describe Pentecost as reversing the effects of Babel. I, I think I know what they mean, but that's not exactly true. Pentecost doesn't reverse Babel since we're not restored back to only one common language. Our unique heart languages are going to be preserved into eternity. And we, we know that to be so because we, we, we read about this in Revelation. When we get to heaven, we won't be speaking one common language. The Apostle John was given a glimpse of heaven, and he saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, 
standing before the throne of the Lamb, and they were singing praises to the Lamb in their own native tongue, in their own heart language. So I think it's better to say that Pentecost redeemed the effects of Babel. It didn't reverse it, it redeemed it. Humanity, humanity doesn't go back to sharing one common language, but that's because God has given us an even greater source of unity than a shared language. No doubt, language, my friends, is a powerful unifying force. But according to God's unfolding plan, from Pentecost onward, the redeemed people of God will be unified, not by a common language or a common culture, but by a common faith and a common spirit. There is one gospel in which we all trust and one Holy Spirit in which we all share. That means our Christian unity and our Christian mission does not depend on us choosing and using only one language. And that's why a church like ours can contain a multiplicity of languages, and yet we can still be unified in the Spirit. We can experience and express Christian unity. Sure, there are going to be language barriers and cultural barriers, but they can be overcome by our shared faith and our shared life together in the Spirit. And this is why our Christian mission of, of disciple-making among the nations is not dependent on choosing and using one language. Every heart language is valued by God and will be re represented around the throne of the Lamb where Jesus is going to receive the global praise he deserves from every single language on earth. And that is why we are getting behind the Adopt-A-Verse campaign. Because every language on earth will be represented in heaven. We want to see God's word translated into every language. We want to make sure every people group on earth knows how to sing to the Lamb in their own heart language. So let's work together to make that possible. Starting with those three people groups in the Patip cluster. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for helping us to develop a theology of language and understanding that the languages that you have given us today, though they are birthed out of rebellion, Lord, they are still beautiful in your sight and they are according to your plans because one day your son will receive praise in every single one of those languages. And so, Lord, help us now as a church to get behind this project, to get more languages, uh, uh, more of your word translated into these languages. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.